So, so we've mentioned in recent weeks, uh, as we transitioned into the new year, one of the burdens that we have at First City Church is to grow as a, as a people experiencing the benefits of prayer and committed to the practice of prayer. As such, we're spending more time in our gospel communities praying together. We're relaunching a rhythm, as Pastor Chris shared, to, to gather once a month for corporate prayer. And we'd love to, to see you be present and jump into that rhythm. And we are in a sermon series considering how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. A prayer often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. This morning, as we continue to examine that prayer... We will specifically explore the words and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So as, I, as we begin to, to reflect on this language, I feel it's appropriate for me to get something off my chest. Okay? It's, something, it's something I've kind of kept in, in the dark. Now, this is not so much a confession of sin but, but just something I feel like I, I need to share with you all. So I'm not asking for forgiveness, although maybe some of you will tell me I, I should. This has to do with how I have come, I've come to appreciate something that many Christians find offensive. Now, good news, I'm not talking about masks or vaccines or anything to do with sexual identity. This does not have to do with the type of movies we watch or don't watch, how much time we spend on social media, what social media platforms you should spend time on, not Twitter, or, or what political party you should sign up to be a part of. The thing I have come to appreciate that many Christians find offensive is cancel culture. For those less familiar with cancel culture, this is when someone or some entity is perceived to do something that's objectionable. Um, and so people respond and they ostracize or exclude. They push them to the margins, trying to punish for particular actions. Words of shame and guilt and condemnation and accusation are, are expressed. Boycotts or distancing from the offensive party is threatened and sometimes acted upon. Okay, now that I have that off my chest, some of you may be concerned where this is going in a sermon about forgiveness. Others may, may be excited. So let me clarify. What I find attractive about cancel culture, what I affirm is actions have consequences. I may disagree with the actions many object to, but a Christian would agree actions have repercussions. Guilt, shame, sorrow, broken relationships, loss of status. Those are the natural byproduct of offensive behavior. People are reaping what they sow. So cancel culture is a, is a bit of a rejecting a, a false form of forgiveness and shallow unity that has become all too common, where many proclaim everyone deserves to be forgiven. Actions 
shouldn't have consequences. We all should just get along. This is a flat form of forgiveness that falls far short of what Scripture offers. In teaching his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray for something bold, to ask for something that is brash, that would not be deserved and is not deserved. In our world where we hurt and harm one another, apart from the gospel, our natural tendency, the thing we would normally do is to hold on to resentment and to seek revenge and retribution. And so it would be ordinary and expected for God to hold on to offenses. We would expect that. And it would be typical for people to extend shame and guilt and condemnation when others sin against us. Jesus is teaching his followers to pray for a reversal and to live out something that is not consistent with cancel culture. To invite his followers to pray this petition, Jesus is teaching there is a heavenly father who forgives the sins and objectionable behavior of his people. And he's teaching, as his people understand this disposition of knowing something unexpected, something extraordinary, as we understand we have been forgiven, we will extend that forgiveness to others. So in light of that, our our big idea this morning is the Father who forgives fathers, followers who forgive. If you have a Bible and you want to open up to the passage Jen read earlier, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to actually look at verses 9 through 15. And as we explore this big idea, we're going to consider how this happens. How does the Father who forgives father followers who forgive? Why are people transformed? What is so extraordinary about forgiveness? And we'll talk about what it means to be a follower who experiences forgiveness and that then extends forgiveness to others. So let's first consider the Father who forgives. The language Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is, forgive us our debts. That language debt, it has to do with something that is owed. It could mean financial debt, like I owe a million dollars or two million dollars. But it could also be a a different type of obligation, like owing a hundred hours of community service. Jesus is connecting forgiveness to an objective obligation, which is a little different to how we sometimes view forgiveness. Let, Let me give you an example. In the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor, where Tom Hanks plays the role of one of my favorite characters from childhood. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have Bluey, we didn't have Paw Patrol, we didn't have Lion Guard, we had Sesame Street, so so Elmo and Big Bird, and we had Mr. Rogers. So in, in one scene in this movie, Mr. Rogers... He introduces the topic of forgiveness 
to his audience. And looking into the camera, he says this. Do you know what that means to forgive? It's a decision we make to release a person from the feelings of anger we have at them. Okay, this is communicating. Forgiveness means releasing someone from feelings of anger that we have. Forgiveness is therefore about changing our feelings. Now, I won't disagree that oftentimes when we need to forgive, we are angry. That is true. But what Jesus is saying, there is damage and destruction that has occurred that extends beyond feelings. There is real hurt and harm. There is a debt that needs to be repaid. This prayer isn't change how you feel, God. It's saying release or cancel or forgive the debt that I owe. The one doing the act of forgiving is sacrificing at significant cost. Whatever is needed to to bring someone back to being debt-free, that thing is surrendered. Releasing that debt, it costs something. So one reason we struggle to grow into followers who forgive is because we have a shallow view of what forgiving debt is. Canceling or releasing a debt has become kind of watered down. In our, in our culture, canceling or, or, or releasing that debt, it's, it's, not, it's very simple. You know, I think about the concept of forgiving student loan debt. Individuals with tens of thousands of dollars, perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, they embrace a disposition. They don't want to have to pay that back. They worked hard. They were in a tough spot. They, they deserve to have their loan forgiven. And because the federal government has such a vast amount of resources, or at least we perceive that it does, it doesn't really cost them anything to release that debt, to to make you debt-free. It's no big deal to forgive. In this view, forgiveness is something we're entitled to. And it's something that doesn't cost the forgiving party, anything significant. That's not biblical forgiveness. Our debt is something significant. Now, it's important to know, Jesus is not referring here to how we relate to to making mistakes. Forgiving a debt is not because someone did something wrong as part of a learning curve. You You know, it's interesting to consider As Jesus was learning to be a carpenter, did he make chairs with flaws? Not because he was lazy or not paying attention, but because he was learning. And as he was learning, could he have made a chair that collapsed and someone would have gotten hurt? Discuss that that question in your gospel communities this week and, and get back to me. Regardless of your answer, that is not the type of action Jesus is referring to. Seeking forgiveness for a debt has to do with deliberate actions that hurt and harm. This is actually one of the problems with cancel culture. 
It labels everything that hurts me as a, as a type of sin, regardless of motive. There are reasons that we hurt one another that have nothing to do with sin. Sin is a deliberate rejection of the rule and reign of God. Rather than receiving his righteous authority and power, I'm going to do my own thing. Even though he has revealed himself to me, even though he has given me his word and his people to to help me know how I should live, I'm rejecting it. I know you told me how to do it, but I know I'm better than you. I don't trust you. I have a higher view of myself than you, and so I'm going to do it my own way. When we live that way, it causes significant damage and destruction. That's what sin is, and that's what sin does. Our debt is something significant. And to forgive that debt costs the forgiving party something significant. We often don't see forgiving that sin as something that costs something. This is exposed when we consider how we tend to relate to those who sin against us. For example, we may think, you know what, I'd probably do that too. So that action is justified. Or in the grand scheme of things, when I think about the course of, of life, time's going to heal those wounds, so it's, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I can absorb that pain, so I, I don't need that to come between us. Those attitudes towards harmful actions have little to do with forgiveness but more so is a biblical category called looking over offenses, which is certainly something we want to to demonstrate as Christians, but that is not forgiveness. With forgiveness, there is an action or attitude that has been performed that has caused pain and harm and real damage. To release that, it costs the forgiving party something significant. In teaching his followers to pray for forgiveness, to plea for something extraordinary. Jesus was not teaching them to pray for something new. He was drawing on themes of the significance of forgiveness in the Old Testament. Listen to Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Our sin, our iniquities, our actions, rejecting the rule and reign of God, it causes real damage. It means we are stained. We do not deserve to be in the presence of God. We have broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. If those actions determine how we relate to God, we have no business being with him. Yet, yet, the psalm says, with him there is forgiveness. There is something that happens that is remarkable, not natural, extraordinary. It is not something we are entitled to. Do you believe forgiveness is something you're entitled to? Or is it something extraordinary? To to clarify how forgiveness is not something we are entitled to, there's this story told in the Gospel of Luke 
where Jesus is eating with one of the, the Pharisees, a person identified as Simon. And into that gathering enters a female described as a woman of the city, a, a sinner, which at the very least meant that she was known in the community for not being committed to sexual purity and faithfulness. She approaches Jesus, and the gospel says she wets his feet with her tears and anoints them with oil. The Pharisees at this gathering believe this woman's sin defines her. She is dirty and defiled. She has no business being around a good teacher like Jesus. They have canceled her. So Jesus tells a story about forgiveness using this language of not canceling people, but canceling the debt of people. In the parable, one individual, one individual owes over a year and a half of, of wages. The other owes an amount that is much less. Both had their debt canceled. Both are forgiven. To teach Simon how forgiveness is extraordinary, Jesus says, when they could not pay more, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. When someone does not see forgiveness as extraordinary, it's taken for granted. It's dismissed. It does not affect their heart. Someone who sees the radical nature of forgiveness as something that they do not deserve, as something they are not entitled to, it transforms them. Have the words, you are forgiven transformed your heart. When we realize we have been released from a debt, a debt that we cannot pay back, from being dirty and defiled, it transforms us. Because it is not something that we have earned. It is not something that we are entitled to. The Father who forgives, forgives at significant cost to himself. So I remember when we were selling our first house, moving to the house we live in today, as we were working on the closing process, our, our realtor, Vicki, she came in one day and she was ecstatic. She showed us the financials and she says, you guys, you guys hit the jackpot. We were, we were buying a foreclosure and on the paperwork outlining the, the costs that the bank was responsible for, it included the closing costs for the purchase of the home. Now, if you've ever bought a foreclosure, you know that bank, they've lost a ton of money on that home. They are not going above and beyond in paying extra costs, including any costs that you are responsible to pay for. And so they are not paying your closing costs. The buyer, me, Michelle and I, we were we, we, we should be responsible for those. But that bank had given us a gift, giving us thousands of dollars. Our realtor was ecstatic. She could not contain herself. She was so excited. It actually took Michelle and I a while to figure out what in the world was going on. 
This is how we relate to something we don't deserve. It causes us to rejoice. It causes us to be excited and to be grateful. See, some of us take take for granted uh, having a father who forgives because deep down you believe forgiveness is rooted in your performance, connected to the absence of bad behavior or your ability to make up for all your sinful actions. Deep down, you believe you're forgiven because you deserve it. You're entitled to it because you were smart enough to make a decision to to receive Christ. For you, it is right behavior that results in forgiveness. Conversely, there, there are others of you, you can't receive forgiveness because your sin you feel so dirty and dark. Your ability or your ability to receive forgiveness is rooted in performance as well. You feel the weight of guilt and shame. You wake up in the morning and you feel dirty and defiled. You hear words of accusation and condemnation about past sin. You feel as though you deserve to be canceled canceled by others, and canceled by God. Your actions disqualify you from receiving forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about what we deserve. When we boldly pray, forgive us our debts, we are praying, Father, you've promised to give us something we don't deserve. God, we have sinned. We have caused destruction and damage. God, we, we didn't trust your righteous rule and reign, and we went our own way. God, even though we don't deserve it, even though we know it is a gift, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our iniquities. And just like releasing a monetary debt costs something, we understand releasing this spiritual debt, it costs God something. At the time Jesus taught his followers this prayer, they knew forgiving sin required sacrifice. But but they didn't fully understand what forgiving sin cost God. We do. In light of the cross, we know forgiveness cost the Father surrendering his one and only Son. We know it cost our Savior, Jesus Christ, being beaten and bruised and broken. Do you understand what forgiving your sin cost your God? Do you understand the the significance of what it means that you have a father who forgives? In many ways, the, the significance of Christ dying on a cross, it has become somewhat shallow and sanitized. We don't see how significant his suffering was. I say that even as a cross is on our worship stage. When we see that cross, rightly so, we're seeing something that is beautiful. And if we picture Jesus hanging on that cross, we see him as someone who was victorious. But what we miss is how scandalous our Savior suffering on a cross was. Death on a cross was ugly. It was was horrific. Such a death was reserved for the most heinous of criminals. 
People who were determined to be beyond being restored to society. Our Savior Jesus Christ was determined to be so dirty and so defiled that he could not be restored. He didn't deserve that type of death. A criminal did. This is what your sin cost God. Your sin and my sin, our debt cost an innocent man his life. That was the cost of forgiveness. Church, you have rejected the rule and reign of your God. And this is not a mistake. You chose to follow your own way. You did not trust your God. You trusted self. And this has caused damage and destruction and debt to understand how extraordinary forgiveness is. You must see that cost. You must confront the ugliness of your sin. You must understand that it makes you dirty and unclean and how it leaves you desperate and in damnable debt. And yet, your God took on that debt. And rather than canceling you, rather than giving you what you deserve, your God took on your dirtiness and the the ways you have defiled and the ways you have damaged others and you are debt-free. You are forgiven. So affirming forgiveness as something we don't deserve, it transforms how we relate to God and it transforms how we relate to those who sin against us, those who hurt us, those who cause us deliberate damage and destruction. The Father who forgives Father's followers who forgive. So let's turn our attention from the Father who forgives to what it means to be followers who forgive. Jesus teaches his followers to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our plea for God to forgive is connected to how we relate to those who sin against us. So this is the only petition of the Lord's prayer that the Gospel of Matthew indicates Jesus immediately provides an explanation afterwards. Perhaps that's because this connection between us asking for forgiveness and how we relate to others might be missed or dismissed. So here's what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your offenses. Okay, hearing this explanation, we might ask, is Jesus saying we are forgiven because we forgive others? I mean, that's a really important question. Because if being forgiven is rooted in our behavior, well, that means we are responsible to earn forgiveness. And if we hold on to any degree of resentment or bitterness towards others, if we fail to release all the debt of those that have sinned against us, we're left with this question, will God forgive us? That type of connection would be cause and effect. My actions cause the effect of God forgiving me. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, however, upholding a critical connection. As his followers, we want God to release us 
We want God to forgive us the way that we forgive others. So as you understand the forgiveness of God, there will be evidence in your life. You will not seek to cancel others, even the worst of sinners. You will not seek to punish those who sin against you again and again. There will be all sorts of pain and challenge in forgiving. There will be a significant cost, but you will seek to do it. The father who forgives fathers followers who forgive. He does not follow or follow followers who don't forgive. When we are unwilling to forgive others, we are rejecting the gospel. We are affirming that people should get what they deserve. That means what Jesus is saying, it is not intended to drive us to perform, but it is intended to confront us, to lead us to assess our lives and examine our hearts. Don't take how you relate to the sins of others for granted. Some of us need to be confronted and challenged in relation to that. Because how we relate to others, it says something about what we believe. Jesus is provoking a tendency that we make when we trust in religion, affirming that we are forgiven, but we're not willing to extend forgiveness to others. When we desire others to be condemned... When we hold on to resentment and bitterness, when we subtly search for ways to punish others with words and actions, we're demonstrating a deficient understanding of the gospel and the character of our gracious God. Okay, let let me share some words from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody who lives beneath the cross and who has discerned in the cross of Jesus the utter wickedness of all men and of his own heart will find there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. Anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. So when you understand the depth of your sin, how that, cro- how that cost Christ his life, you will, you will forgive But when the determining factor for for being formed into a follower who forgives is performance, your ability to do the right thing, your ability to do righteous, your ability to avoid specific sins, the idea of releasing a, a debt of how someone has hurt and harmed, that will make you bitter. You will seek ways to punish others when they cause damage and destruction. Maybe not overtly trying to hurt them, but subvertly you will want them to pay a price. You will want them to earn forgiveness. Such a disposition is not Christian. The father who forgives fathers, followers who forgive. Now, now, in this moment of being confronted with how we relate to those who sin against us, I think it's important to clarify what forgiveness is. Many of us have been sinned against in painful and difficult ways. And some, some would say that forgiveness means everything goes back to the way it was. That would be denying what happened. And that could mean pretending specific hurt and harm didn't occur. That could mean stuffing how someone has been damaged 
those things are not forgiveness. Everything going back to the way it was, when that is done well, when that is done biblically, that's something called restoration. Although restoration is not so much going back to the way it was, but moving forward to something that is much, much, much better. Forgiveness is a step towards restoration, but forgiveness does not equal restoration. So forgiveness, listen, listen. So forgiveness does not mean putting yourself in situations where you could be abused or where you could be a doormat to be damaged. That is not what forgiving debtors means. Forgiveness is releasing a debt, pardoning someone's actions when they don't deserve it. Forgiveness means even though I'm justified to punish you, even though I'm justified to pull back from you, even though I'm justified to hate you, I won't do that. Forgiveness is a a movement of the heart that is not disconnected from desiring reconciliation and restoration, but because it means in spite of what happened, with full understanding of the damage and destruction and harm and hurt that someone's actions have caused, rather than someone needing to earn forgiveness, I release their debt. They are debt-free at great cost to me. I forgive them. And in forgiving them, your message will be that past hurt and harm that you caused me, that is not what ultimately determines how we relate to one another. I desire something different for you. I long for you to know biblical forgiveness. I long for you to be restored, even if that restoration happens in heaven. See, followers of a father who forgives extend forgiveness to others. They are known for extending forgiveness. The the Apostle Paul communicates this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In Christ, God was forgiving sinners like you and I. He was not counting their trespasses against them. He was not canceling them. In Christ, sin does not determine our relationship with God. The surrender and sacrifice of Christ does. Because of that surrender and sacrifice, because of the cost he was willing to pay, we are debt-free. Our debt has been canceled. We have been reconciled and restored in our relationship with God. And those who have received forgiveness, they extend forgiveness. God is using them to demonstrate his grace and love towards people who reject and run from his rule and reign. We demonstrate this with our actions, moving towards others, and with our words and our message, there is a God who forgives. There is a God who extends forgiveness. There is a God who pursues reconciliation with you. Receive that forgiveness. God's kindness is what leads to repentance. Be reconciled and restored to that God. 
You see, some of us, rather than extend forgiveness, we are prone to extend shame and condemnation and guilt. Rather than words expressing what someone doesn't deserve, love, compassion, mercy, you give people what they do deserve and your words accuse. This is what we should expect and demonstrate if we resemble what is natural, what is ordinary. But that is not what we should expect within the church, from people within the church. As I conclude, uh, uh, let me say, in addition to having a shallow view of what it means that God forgives us, that our debt is, is is insignificant, and the cost to forgive is, is not really all that much. We also have a shallow view of what Christian community is. See, too often we think what binds people together in the church is having complementary likes and dislikes, having similar values. We, we maybe even embrace a bit of a union where we do good looking over and looking past one another's minor offenses. I mean, I hope those things happen. I want that to be true of the people at First City Church, but that is not Christian community. I can experience that type of relationship in my secular workplace or my neighborhood or within my extended family. What I can't experience is a binding together of a people who tend to hurt and harm one another as we sin. Professor and scholar D.A. Carson says this, the reason there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians is because the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation. Not sure what that word means. We'll ask Ian Wheeler later. (laughs) Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural enemies. We are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. What binds Christians together is not performance or preferences or positions on particular issues. The the church community does not experience communion and oneness because of the absence of conflict. We are bound together while we have conflict in spite of differences, in spite of of sometimes being enemies by the cross of Christ. The church should not resemble cancel culture. The church should not reflect, excuse me, the church should not resemble cancel culture. The church should reflect the culture created by the cross of Christ. A culture where sin is taken seriously and a culture where debts are released. Where sin and past hurt and past harm do not ultimately define how we relate to one another. 
You know, some of us, we need to be honest. Our reason for loving others, for, for being committed to the Christian community, is because of how others act towards us or around us. And that has nothing to do with the cross of Christ. Parents, I think we can be significant offenders here. We uphold that participating in Christian community is about finding people who are the same age, the same gender, who have the same interests. That's not Christian community. That's, that's the type of community the world seeks, being part of a tribe where we are the same. Christian community is rooted in the cross of Christ in spite of differences, in spite of past pain, in spite of having little in common. The church is not natural friends. The church is made up of natural enemies. But praise be to God. We do not stay that way. Not because we find similar things about our background or about what we like or because we have the same values, but because of the cross of Christ, the Father who forgives fathers a family of followers who forgive. This is the foundation for our relationships in the church. Understanding the significance of how God has forgiven our debt, our sin, our iniquities, we do not take forgiveness for granted. It is not something we are entitled to. Forgiveness becomes, therefore, our defining reality. And it drives the way we relate to others. And, and because we are caught up in the forgiveness we have received in Christ, we extend it to others. Not accusation and condemnation and, and, or bitterness and resentment. We reflect the forgiveness we have received. We do not cancel people who have committed evil actions because we understand how our debts, how our evil actions have been forgiven, how that is what has been canceled. So we extend the forgiveness we have received to others. Let's pray that we are that type of people.